You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Obstetrical ultrasound has been an essential tool for practicing obstetricians for the past 25 years, but what is the impact of it today in our medical field? With me today is Dr. Anthony Odebo, Associate Professor of OBGYN and Director of the Fetal Care Center at Washington University in St. Louis. Today we will discuss the challenges and potential of perinatal ultrasonography and how it can assist in genetic evaluation, anatomic fetal survey, and fetal care for both low and high-risk patients. Welcome, Dr. Odebo. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So it's really seeming in the last five or 10 years that ultrasound has had an immense impact on the care of obstetrical patients, starting with the non-invasive genetic screening that we now do in the first trimester. If you could comment on the reliability of first trimester ultrasound and genetic prediction. The first trimester screening was actually started almost 10 years ago in the United Kingdom, based on initial work by Professor Nicolaides who observed at the time of performing chorionic villus sampling that babies who had a Down syndrome tended to have increased skin fold behind the neck, and this was called mucotranslucency. Following that initial experience, they then proposed a more systematic way of evaluating this and screening in the first trimester for Down syndrome. And this is now called the first trimester screening or nucleotransducency screening in many units. Since developing this and based on a big trial that was performed here in the United States called the FASTER trial, there have been different strategies proposed on how to use this first trimester approach. Mm -hmm. So people have moved on from just using the measurement of the skin fold behind the neck, which is a nucleotransducency, to combining this with some biochemical analytes, including PAP-A, which is pregnancy-associated plasma protein A, and beta-HCG, which is human chorionic gonadotrophin. And when you combine these three together, you could detect at least 85% of Down syndrome fetuses. Who do you think we should be offering this first trimester testing to? So initially, there was a move towards offering this only to high-risk women, meaning people who were either had a previous baby with a chromosomal problem like Down syndrome or who are over 35 years old. However, based on recent findings and recommendations by ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, it is proposed to offer this screening to every pregnant woman. Do you think that between different ethnic groups, there should be different criteria about what we're looking at on ultrasound? For example, most of the growth scans that are done are done based on children in middle America that are the 50th percentile of almost everything. But does that integrate enough ethnic diversity to allow it to apply to other folks that are maybe of Asian descent or African-American descent? You bring up an interesting question. Um, in the past, you're correct. We've kind of used the same criteria for different racial groups. There's now currently a move towards what's called a customized growth scan. And what that does, it, it doesn't just take the race or ethnicity of the baby or the parents into consideration, but also takes into consideration other maternal characteristics, such as the weight, the height of the mother, 
and possibly some other genetic factors that could influence the growth of the baby. This is now commonly used in Europe, but there is a move by the NIH here to perform a multi-center trial where we incorporate different people from different ethnic groups to try and define a more customized growth chart. So hopefully in the next five years, there will be data coming out from the U.S. where there will be more structured or streamlined growth assessment for different racial groups or for each baby being its own control. I also want to touch on something that's getting great popularity, which is 3D ultrasound. And if you feel that there's any indication for that in the obstetrical perinatal ultrasound arena. Obviously, the commercial advertisements that have been out there with the 3D ultrasound, there has been a lot of interest in trying to see if this is useful. Unfortunately, the medical literature as it stands currently hasn't really showed a very strong indication for 3D ultrasound. One potential area where 3D ultrasound may be useful is in facial abnormalities, where such as cleft lip or uh, cleft palate, where sometimes we are very limited using our 2D ultrasound. With this exception, most of the other areas where people are trying to bring in indications for 3D ultrasound, this is still really questionable whether this has any advantage compared with the 2D. It's amazing what advertising has done, though. Patients are coming in proudly showing their pictures as if they went to Sears for a 3D ultrasound. It's really remarkable. Exactly. And obviously, hopefully, with refined technology in the future, the 3D may become more useful and maybe the rendering may be quicker so that we can get more useful information instantaneously. I think another way that ultrasounds really become revolutionary for us is in trying to predict preterm labor. And as you know, preterm delivery still counts for 70 to 80 percent of neonatal morbidities. Can you comment a little bit about how ultrasound can help us determine who's at risk for preterm labor or delivery? Yes. Over the last 10 years, there were literature coming based on initial studies from Anderson and then followed by work done by Jay Iams from Ohio and then Bergella and our group when we were in Philadelphia. Uh, we found that using the ultrasound to measure the cervical length, especially if you do this transcervically or transvaginally, you can determine women who are at risk for preterm delivery based on a shortened cervical length. We've showed that if the cervical length is less than 25 millimeters, the patient has a higher risk of delivering preterm compared with people who have a longer cervical length. The challenge in the future for us really is trying to look for the best intervention to use to prevent preterm delivery in this group of patients who have been shown to have short cervical length. Uh, Cerclage was used commonly in the past, but this hasn't been shown to be useful for everybody. And more current effort is looking at using 17-hydroxyprogesterone or some form of progesterone gel as a treatment for women with short cervical length. Do you feel that the absence of cervical funneling would change your recommendation of cerclage versus medication as a way to prevent preterm labor? Not really. Obviously, cervical funneling can be seen in some patients at risk, but even in the presence of funneling, it's only when it's more than 25% that we feel that it's predictive of preterm delivery. The problem with funneling is that it's very subjective and to really quantify it is not as accurate compared with using the functional cervical length, which is what we tend to rely on. And the optimal time to check the cervical length is when? 
The optimal time as recommended by ACOG is to do it after 16 weeks. So we would recommend doing it between 16 weeks to 24 weeks because after 24 weeks, there's really no known intervention that may be very useful, such as sex large. And now that ultrasound has really been able to open the door to figuring out if birth defects are there prior to delivery in the fetuses, there's now a move for minimally invasive phytoscopy and therapy in that way. Can you comment a little bit about where you think that will be taking us? Yes. So phytoscopy is a process where it starts really with a high-resolution ultrasound, and then you use a two-millimeter telescope to look into the amniotic cavity and visualize the baby directly, so that's a phytoscope. Using this, which especially in one of the areas that is highly used currently in the treatment of twin-twin transfusion, uh, through the phytoscope, you can then introduce laser energy with which you can separate monochorionic twins which are transfusing blood unequally between each other. So that's one indication. Other uses of phytoscopy will include cases of uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia. In Europe, they are now able to introduce some balloon into the trachea to occlude it and thereby trap in some intraperineal or intra fluid within the lungs that helps with expansion of the lungs and then go back at around 35 weeks to remove this balloon, which is less invasive than previously where they've tried to treat these diaphragmatic hernias in utero. Do you think that the uh, concerns about preterm delivery after these kind of photoscopies has been limited in any way since the new research has been done? That's a good point you bring up in that this is one of the major limitations of these invasive procedures. The new instruments that people are using because they are very fine, in theory, could reduce the risk of preterm delivery, but the risk is still there. It's not completely eradicated. One of the ways people are trying to look at maybe preventing at least preterm premature rupture of membranes during these procedures is to put in some kind of a glue technique or some fibers that could glue and clog off any of the membranes that was ruptured during the procedures. But this is ways ahead, and we've not really made enough advance in that area. Thank you so much, Dr. Odebo, for being our guest today. It has been discussing the challenges and the amazing potential that perinatal ultrasound may bring to the practice of obstetrics. Call us toll-free with comments and suggestions to 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear, and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, 
but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter.